Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywell Podcast. In this episode, we present excerpts from Lucy Goffin's lecture, The Independent Artist, Working to Commission. The lecture was recorded live on October 22, 2007, as part of the Maywa Textile Symposium. Lucy Goffin is one of the UK's leading textile artists, producing individual works for commission and couture collections. Her work takes many forms, and she has perfected a technique of constructing cloth by piecing together fine textured fabrics, richly coloured or sometimes understated and subtle, with a strong sculptural sensibility and interest in intricate detail. She uses many stitched, layered, and applied methods in the production of her final work. Lucy has been a featured artist and instructor at the Jaipur Heritage International Festival, in association with the Enoki Museum. The festival pairs local experts with well-known international designers. Lucy Goffin has also exhibited nationally and internationally. Notable collections containing her work include the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Crafts Council, London. She received an Arts Council Millennium Award, which led to a Year of the Artist residency at Great Dixter House and Gardens, home of gardener writer Christopher Lloyd. Her most recent work was the completion of a major commission for the Glenbourne Opera House. You may know about it. It's an extraordinary phenomena, really, Glenbourne, because it was... Uh, I mean, it literally is an opera house in the middle of a field. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look out from these terraces and you just see sheep grazing in the down, in the downland uh, landscape. And this actually was commissioned by Nima Reed, whose husband died, and she wanted it to be a memorial to him um, because he loved opera and came to Glyndebourne regularly. And so my challenge was to create something that had great gravitas but also had the kind of airy quality of a spirit life too. And I wanted to, I was going to do a textile work, but actually this place where it was chosen to be, that this work would be, is slightly, is semi-outside. It's, I mean, it doesn't get rained on, but it does actually have the outside air coming in. And I sort of felt that probably anything I made in a textile would probably go mouldy before very long from the damp atmosphere. So it it made me think, how can I make something which has the quality of textiles but which can be more practical in this place? And so I thought to use the fibre optics to create the gravitas that was necessary for the meaning of this piece of work, which I chose um, a huge disc of Cumbrian slate, green slate, that also we would have to have a reference to the opera because that was the whole point. So we chose to have the three words from the second act of The Magic Flute, which is wisdom, reason, nature. In those words, they are connected to the opera, but they also have great meaning, these words, and they can be for anyone to ponder. And we... When I say we, I should say at this point that in order to carry out this commission, I needed to bring in the skills of other craftsmen and artists. And in fact, I've loved that through my life. I've often collaborated and I really enjoy the collaboration. I mean, commissions are about collaborating hugely. Um, And this one was to bring on 
a very, very good letter carver, stone letter carver, Chris Elsie, who did this beautiful lettering, and he also did the gold leafing. And I also asked Paul Hasty, who's a lighting designer, to help me with the technical side of working with fiber optics. And as you can see, we, we actually cut a whole, we got a whole cut in the center of the slate so that all the fiber optics come from the center and they come out and wind about and are just connected by each other at certain points to create this kind of wonderful movement and light that the fiber optics bring. And then much more recently, because of Graham's garden that I spent a lot of time in both working and enjoying, I seem to find that um, making bunches for the, for the sales shed or bunches for the house led me to get very interested in the idea of making work that was directly inspired by the plants. But I call these my imaginary flower pictures because they don't really represent the plants are the plants you can't they are beautiful they are themselves but I wanted to try and create a kind of quality of the bunches that I make um, with the textiles um, so they are they are imaginary flowers and this one is using some of the um, indigo that I've been experimenting with um, the beautiful turquoise indigo that I've been working with Jenny Balfour Paul. And this brings me to the, the last part of my talk, which is to bring Jenny into the picture because she's a very important <clears throat> person to all of us. Uh, she has uh, written a wonderful book about indigo, but she has done so much to to really promote the whole idea of using natural dyes and to uh, think about the ecology and how we, you know, how we, we make our textiles. And uh, every summer, Jenny and I get together, and we've also got with us there Polly, um, who is uh, a, an, an indigo dyer, who's a friend of ours. And we, we get together and we work with this plant in front of us here called Persicaria tinctorium. And we make the, a fresh leaf indigo uh, from this from the leaves. We make a fresh leaf liquor, which we dye these beautiful, beautiful, fine handloom scarves, which come from and shawls that come from um, from West Bengal. And uh, and we we have this wonderful session every summer where we we dye these scarves. And I have brought some for here for you to look at and to buy if you wish. And this is just a collection of the scarves. And just before we finish, I'd like to just point out that the magic of this dye is that where the scarves have a cotton weave in them, it, it won't dye because it only dyes protein-rich um, silk or, or wool. Uh, silk especially, and especially the fine silks, the very fine ones seem to do, have the deep, deepest, most rich turquoise. But I love the, the fact that, you know, you can get this variation, um, not only of the actual depth of the blue, but also this wonderful mixture of cotton and silk in some cases. After Lucy's formal presentation, there was a question and answer period. Here are some of the questions. Do you use a special technique 
to do your collage making? Um, one of the things that's very important, though, about that uh, collage stitching is that I never stick anything down. It's all just pinned, and then I sew it very spontaneously. And I think that's actually really important to the, the feel of it. I've never been a great sticker downer of fabric. I like, <laughs> I like fabric to sort of breathe and, and be itself. Um, and um, so that's why I also pointed out that I use my stitching to create uh, any sort of sculptural effect or, or structural effect that's ne necessary. Um, but also with the collages, um, you know, it's actually amazing how you can go so quickly wrong with color of the thread. And that I learned to my, um, well, early in the early stages, and it still happens that I'll get slightly too bright a color, and I have to unpick it. <laughs> because, you know, actually, it's surprising how... Um, getting that just balance of the color in the stitching is very crucial and how when you see the pinned collage when you first put it together how different its mood is and then when you put the stitching in there's a it's a sort of depth starts to emerge so all these things are very you know they need to be considered how did your commission start and how do you market your work how did it start really um well, it was definitely the, the, the jackets and waistcoats, and I would say it's word of mouth and people seeing work and then coming and saying, oh, I saw that jacket, you know, I really like the way you, you made it. Will you make one for me? And, I, and I've, all, I've never made two the same. I mean, there are no two jackets the same in the world, and, and that's because we're all different and all have, you know, different ideas about things. And so that's, that's actually one of the things the reasons why I enjoy making commissions so much because it's been so interesting working with people in, and trying to see what it is they want to wear, how, what they feel comfortable with. And um, so it just, it, it just evolved and it happened very slowly actually. I mean now I'm almost always got a commission on the go but it's taken many years. I mean I, I really suppose my first one, the one I showed at the beginning was 1973 that's really when I started to work with textiles. How many hours or days does it take to make a commission? Um, quite a lot, actually. Um, um, but it's very variable. And, I mean, I have got quicker, you know, at making things over the years, I suppose. Um, it just depends, you know, how much has gone into it. But I suppose I can... Um, I don't know how to... I'm trying to think which one to use as an example. Um... Well, it can take anything from three days to three weeks to make a really elaborate coat. Do you have training in pattern drafting? Yeah, no, that's, that's quite a struggle for me, actually. Um, I did a short, I did a little course, but, but tailoring is so much a subject in itself. You know, it, it's, it's a di that's quite a difficult area for me um, because I haven't had a full training um, in pattern cutting but I did learn a lot when I worked in the theatre um, that was where I really picked up most most of the tips um, both for construction and pattern cutting because I worked um, with Jean Lamprell who actually was trained on Broadway she worked on all the main musicals and, and shows um, and she she set up her, her practice in London um, and we did all the sill feeds and tutus for all the main 
um, dance companies. And in fact, my first connection with Glyndebourne was through making costumes because in 1975 I made a lot of the costumes for the, for the first production that David Hockney designed, Rake's Progress, for Glyndebourne. And that's really quite a strange circle because I now live three and a half miles from the Opera House. And it was one of, you know, one of the first jobs that I did in, in, in the theatre all that, all that time ago. And in fact, I just um, met the wardrobe uh, mistress at Glyndebourne and said, oh, I'd love to come and see those costumes and see how good they're looking because <laughs> they've still got them, of course. Um, and they've done Rake's Progress once since, just quite recently. But, um, yeah, that, that's, that's really the, the sort of... I also did a job um, as a... I, took, I, I was employed for a short time as a, a dye technician for one of the art schools um, at Farnham um, in, in England. I, I both taught there as a tutor but also worked as an assistant, a uh, dye technician's assistant, <laughs> because, because I wanted to learn more about printed textiles. And, um, and there's nothing like, you know, I, when I decided I knew that I had to move into textiles, although I loved, I do love pottery still, and I loved my training in pottery, but I knew textiles was my direction. But in, because I'd used up my, my training time at art school, um, in order to learn more about textiles, I then had to get lots of jobs, which would help to so pence the theatre costumes and dye technician, <laughs> various jobs that I got over a sort of period of about five years to try and learn more. What effect does frost have on the indigo plants? Ah, oh, yes, I had a crop which I couldn't use, a small crop. And just before we left to come to Canada, there was a frost overnight. And I, I didn't even, I mean, it was the morning we left. I didn't even have time to take a photograph, but it was spectacular. The frost had just brought the indigo out of the leaves. <gasps> it was so beautiful because some of them were, were green, still green. And then these incredible, I've never seen that before, actually, because I think it was because it was a late crop. Well, there we are. Sometimes you have to just enjoy seeing something and a sort of something magical like that and just hold it. Do you sell your indigo plants or seeds? Actually, no, we don't. I mean, I, it's, a, it's an annual, so I collect seed of it. But actually, even that, it's not enough to sell, really, because what we find with our um, climate is that it takes a long time to come to seed. And very often with the first frosts, you, 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 you sometimes miss it altogether. So between us, Jenny and I have try and save seed um, but it's quite difficult to get the timing right because when we die with it, it, it needs to be warm. So we need to do that in August, September. And why I had this late crop, I will just say this because it's just an extraordinary story, this late crop that, um, that has frosted was um, because uh, earlier on when, when Jenny and I were just about to get together for our dyeing session and I always cut my crop and take it down in black plastic bags and then we, we've, we've worked out that it's good enough for the first morning that we dye. We dye very early in the morning. Um, and um, um, anyway, the, about a week before 
I went down to Devon, as where Jenny is, um, the sheep got into, uh, into her garden and completely trod her crop down. And she rang me in such a state and said, we haven't got any leaves, you know. And I said, well, I've only got a small crop this year, so I quickly got some more plants going. But, of course, I, with the view to doing some more dyeing a bit later on, but then we've been very busy, and one thing and another, I haven't done it. So this crop, I thought, well, if the frost stays off, I might try it when I get home. But Jenny has just tried some, and she says it doesn't work late in the season. You know, it's just these windows of opportunity, and I know with any of you who have done any work with indigo, you know it's such a sensitive dye, and it does need the right conditions. It's the same with this plant. So this is all a big learning curve. (laughs) In your commissions, do you ask for an advance and then partial payments? Yes, I always, yeah, no, no, I don't know. I always work it on a big commission. I always say it has to be in three installments. The first installment is for the initial design and the initial purchasing of um, either materials for the framework or or fabrics and then there's a, the middle payment uh, and then there's the final payment at the end and that really makes the deal in the sense that you know it's fair if 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 there's a problem i i don't lose out financially um and it, it, so far that seems to work very well and of course i do the costing uh, of the piece and sometimes there'll be a um, budget, of course, yes, sometimes there's a budget. On that big work for the library, that, that was a, um, a competition anyway. And it was very democratically run because what they did is they put up all the shortlisted designs and asked the public to come in because it's a public library. So they asked the public to come in and put in a ballot box which design they like the best. And when the committee, which included the local council, the architects, the planners, um, when the committee then made the decision, they took into consideration the public, which was really great. I've only come upon upon that once, but it's truly democratic, I felt. Do you find doing public commissions overly restrictive? No, it's just me, and so I have to go through all the... the, um, rules and regulations about fire, <clears throat> you know, fire, fire retarded fabric, um, uh, working with the engineers about how to, you know, construct the, 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 the construction frame which the thing has to go on, how it's going to be worked when, it's, when the windows are cleaned. And um, there's a lot to go through. Um, but actually I found that uh, on the whole... When you go through those things, okay, you could say they are restrictions in a way, but I think it's how you look at it. And I mean, I always look at it as a challenge and think, well, you know, how can I be inventive within that framework? So that's how I look at it. I don't sort of think, oh, can't do, you know, can't do what I want to do. And I don't see it like that. I I always want to um, to see how I can invent um, with what I've got to play with, really. Have you ever been called back because an installation has changed or faded or had something happen? Inevitably, there will be a certain movement in the fabric, yeah, especially those big pieces. But actually, with that piece, which was for the library, with the titanium and the, and the aluminium, I made it in such a way that the, the aluminium is light, 
so that didn't create extra weight for the for the hole and the titanium rods that hold it vertically um, is strong I mean they build airplanes with titanium um, so it was it was something I had to really think through very carefully to start with because obviously I I knew that would be one of the main problems that it could sag and and be a, a problem I haven't had anything back to me saying you know this now doesn't work what are you going to do about it no no I haven't it's it's something you have to think about a lot in in the it's sort of conception of the piece and uh I'm sure it'll I'm sure it'll happen I'll probably go home you know and there'll be a telephone call oh sorry <laughs> you know we need some we need some reworking of this piece <laughs> so <laughs> thank you very much You've been listening to excerpts from Lucy Goffin's lecture, The Independent Artist, Working to Commission. The lecture was recorded live at the Mewa Textile Symposium on October 22, 2007. For more information on the Mewa podcasts, please visit our website at www.mewa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.